Let me ask you a question this morning, friends. Have you ever been a part of a meeting or an encounter that you knew had the potential to literally change your entire life? I remember uh, 10 years ago, my family and I had moved out here to Lindstrom, and uh, we really didn't know many people at all here. Uh, in fact, I, I didn't know anything about Lakes Free Church when we first moved out here to Lindstrom. I was a pastor working in New Brighton at uh, a church, Grace Point Church, and um, hadn't yet gotten my call to come here to Lakes Free. I was commuting every day back and forth into New Brighton, and we were happy. We, we loved the community out here, but, but really, Lakes Free really hadn't even crossed my mind as being a possibility for us to uh, be a church that we'd be a part of, yet alone uh, serve at. But, uh, but one morning as I was driving into my church in New Brighton where I was serving at the time, I, I had to fill up my gas tank, and so I stopped at the BP station here in town. And if you know Wade and Roxy Carlson, longtime members of our church, uh, Wade's the owner of the BP station over there. And I had stopped in to, uh, to say hi to Wade. I, I literally knew one family in Lindstrom, and that was Wade and Roxy Carlson, because I was roommates with their son, Matt, when I was in college at Bethel University. And so, uh, so I had gotten a tank of gas, and I walked into the office there at the BP just to say a quick hello to Wade that morning. And uh, as I walked into Wade's office, Wade said, Jason, uh, yesterday our associate pastor told us that he's going to be leaving the church to, uh, to move to Alexandria to become a senior pastor at another church. And, uh, and so, Jason, we're going to be starting a search for a new associate pastor. W- would you ever have any interest in coming to Lakes Free? Well, again, I I hadn't even considered that before. I I literally knew nothing about this church other than knowing Wade and Roxy. And uh, and I said to Wade, I said, well, you know, I I guess I'd pray about it and consider it. Well, two days later, I'm sitting in Pastor Rick's office, and uh, Wade had orchestrated a meeting with Pastor Rick right away. And uh, I sat down with Pastor Rick, first time ever meeting him, and uh, we just hit it off right away. And we had a great conversation, and Rick pulled out this old audio tape album of my dad from his, uh, his ministry, and he, he knew my dad. And, and uh, so we had a great conversation, and literally like a week later, I'm sitting in a meeting with the search committee, and the ball just kept rolling. But, uh, but it was those two encounters, first with Wade and then Pastor Rick, that literally changed the entire course of my life. And not only my life, but, but the lives of my wife and kids, uh, the people at my former church, Grace Point Church, uh, I left there opening up an opportunity for my younger brother to come in and become the next senior pastor there at Grace Point. I mean, who knew how God was going to do all this? And then not only that, but over the last nine years here at Lakes Free, I've had the privilege of becoming friends and, and ministering to so many people here in our community. And uh, what an incredible blessing. You know, I, I think back on those two encounters, and it's just, you know, all you can say is only God. You know, God had a plan. He was orchestrating those meetings for his purposes. But, you know, it's interesting. I think if we all thought about it for a while this morning, we could probably each come up with a, a number of examples of encounters or meetings like that in our own lives where, where God used those meetings as, as pivotal moments that literally changed the course of our lives. Uh, for some of you, it may have been a job interview Maybe it was a, an appointment at a doctor's office. Maybe it was a conversation with that special someone in your life. But I bet all of us have many examples of encounters, meetings that, that God used in dramatic ways, pivotal ways to change the whole course of our lives. Well, today, as we come back to our study in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, we're going to see a couple of examples 
of encounters in the life of the Apostle Paul that not only shaped his destiny, but literally impacted the entire future of the Christian faith. These were pivotal encounters that we're going to see here today in Galatians chapter 2. Now, now before we get into our passage this morning, let me just give us a quick review of, of where we are. We're three weeks into our series in the book of Galatians now. And just to remind us what Galatians is all about, the book of Galatians written by the Apostle Paul was written to a group of churches uh, which, is, uh, which was in a region called Galatia, which is today in modern-day Turkey. And Paul had founded these churches. He had planted these churches. He had proclaimed the truth of the gospel, and these churches were on fire, growing, and, and yet false teachers came into these churches after Paul had left. And these false teachers began to proclaim a very different message than the one Paul had taught the Galatian Christians. Instead of the, the message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the true gospel, these false teachers, which we today call the Judaizers, they came in proclaiming a new gospel, a gospel that Paul says was really no gospel at all. See, they proclaimed a message that said salvation was found in a relationship with Jesus plus keeping the Old Testament Mosaic laws. And so in addition to believing in Jesus, you basically had to get circumcised. You had to keep all the food laws of the Old Testament covenant. You had to keep all the, the rules and regulations of the Old Testament covenant. It, it was a system that said Jesus plus equals salvation. And as we've talked about the last couple of weeks here in our series in Galatians, friends, anytime you have somebody tell you Jesus plus anything else, okay, you're no longer talking about the biblical gospel, okay? The biblical gospel is Jesus alone, salvation alone through Jesus Christ, nothing else, all right? And so the book of Galatians is really Paul's attempt to counter this false gospel that was creeping into the churches. These Judaizers, they were telling the people there in Galatia that Paul wasn't a real apostle. He didn't really have the authority to teach what he was saying. He's only in it for himself. I mean, they were spreading all these lies about Paul, and then they were corrupting and twisting the truth of the biblical gospel. And so Paul needed to respond to this in order to protect these young churches in Galatia. And now we're fortunate today because we reap the benefit of this letter as we now get to study these powerful truths that, that really highlight the essence of the gospel message. Well, this morning, as I said, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. If you remember last week, Paul shared his faith story with us. He shared about his transformation, how he came to be an apostle, how he came to embrace the hope of the gospel. And now today, Paul's going to continue sharing about two episodes from his background that were really pivotal in protecting and preserving the nature of the gospel in these early years of the Christian faith. So we're going to be in Galatians 2, 1 through 21. You can follow along in your Bible. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen as I read for you here this morning. Fourteen years later, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment 
so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted to take it to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It's an incredible passage of Scripture, full of really important and profound theological truths. And specifically, what I want to highlight today are the two encounters that we see Paul address here in our passage. Because these two encounters that Paul speaks of had huge implications for the future of the gospel and really the entirety of the Christian faith. In fact, friends, it's really impossible to overstate just how central these two encounters that we just read about were to the whole history of Christianity. How many of you have ever seen those pictures of those cars hanging over the edge of a cliff or a bridge? I came across this picture this week of this bus in India. Now, this bus, friends, I mean, there's only two possible outcomes here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this thing's either plummeting down, headed for disaster, or it's going to be rescued and saved. And I share this picture because here in our passage this morning, we discover that Christianity was literally teetering on the brink of disaster in these two stories that we read from the Apostle Paul. And what was at stake here was both the nature of the gospel and the unity that is found in its message. And the fundamental question that our passage addresses today is this. Would Christianity become just another legalistic branch of Judaism 
or would it remain a revolutionary movement of good news? A movement that unites all people regardless of race, background, nationality, color. A movement uniting all people under the free gift of God's grace. Friends, the entire future of Christianity hung in the balance on this question. But fortunately for us, God raised up a champion in the Apostle Paul. And as our passage today highlights, God used the Apostle Paul and his boldness and his passion for the truth to save the gospel and to protect the unity of all people at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to take a look at each of these threats to gospel unity that we read about in our passage this morning. And I want us to understand these threats so that we might better understand the gospel itself. But also, friends, I believe we need to understand these threats because our enemy, Satan, is constantly looking to sow seeds of discord and disunity within the church. And if we're not vigilant, we can fall victim to these same threats today. So so what are the two threats that we see addressed here in our passage this morning? Two threats to gospel unity. Well, the first one we find in verses 1 through 10, and it's the threat of legalism, which we've talked about already in the last couple weeks. Legalism is the idea that in order to be right with God or to prove your worth to God or to earn your salvation with God, there's a whole host of do's and don'ts that you need to faithfully keep in order to win God's favor. And this is the first threat that we find in our passage this morning. In verses 1 through 10 of our passage that we just read, Paul tells us about his second trip to Jerusalem. It was 14 years after he had initially gone there the first time. And he says he was sent there by a revelation from God for the purpose of sharing with the apostles the gospel he had been preaching among the Gentiles. But Paul also tells us in verse 2 that he went to this meeting with a sense of fear. And why was Paul afraid? He was afraid because he was concerned that he had been running his race in vain. You see, Paul was afraid that he was going to show up in Jerusalem and discover that the Judaizers, those legalists who were perverting the gospel, he was afraid that he was going to show up to Jerusalem and the Jerusalem apostles might have compromised on the message of the gospel. He was afraid that they might have bought into this perverted gospel and, and, and it totally then given up the truth of what God had revealed to them. And so Paul says that he was concerned and afraid. Paul knew that if that had happened, it would have disastrous consequences for the church. It would have led to an irrevocable split of the church between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. So Paul went to Jerusalem. And he took a test case with him. He wanted to discover the true convictions of the Jerusalem apostles. So he brought a friend named Titus with him. Titus was a Gentile believer. He was a Greek who had put his trust in Jesus Christ. Now the name Titus might sound familiar to you. There's actually a book in the New Testament named after Titus, the very same guy. He he was a partner in ministry with the apostle Paul, a Gentile follower of Jesus Christ. Now, if the Jerusalem apostles had compromised on the message of the gospel, Paul would know it right away in how they would respond to Titus. Would they make him adopt Jewish laws and customs in order to maintain fellowship with him? Would they require Titus to be circumcised as was required in Judaism? Or would they receive Titus as a brother in Christ simply because he had put his faith in Jesus for salvation? 
See, friends, this was a pivotal moment in the history of Christianity. Well, in verse 3, we find the answer. Paul tells us, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. See, Paul confirms for us that his fears were relieved as the Jerusalem apostles were walking the walk of the biblical gospel. They hadn't embraced the errors of Judaistic legalism, but they had held fast to the true message of the gospel that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And more than that, Paul goes on, he tells us in verse 9 that these leaders of the church in Jerusalem offered he and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They recognized Paul's authority as an apostle, and they recognized their equality as Christians and partners in the ministry of the gospel. So so understand this, friends, this was a huge win for, for the truth of the gospel and a tremendous blow to the legalists that Paul was confronting in Galatia. Now, what does this passage have to do with us today? Well, we can certainly recognize the historical significance of this story. But friends, this encounter Paul had in Jerusalem should also serve as a reminder to us that we need to remain vigilant against legalism's threat to Christian unity. See, Satan loves to sow discord by getting us to buy the lie that our standing before God is based on our performance. And it becomes very tempting to judge others or to separate from others because we deem their walk with the Lord as being less praiseworthy than our walk with the Lord. But friends, please remember this this morning. The only one who had a truly praiseworthy walk was Jesus. The reality is we don't earn any extra favor with God by what we do. We earn all our favor with God by what Jesus has done for us. And it's in this truth that every sinner, every sinner who hopes in Jesus Christ for salvation is an equal. We're all equals at the foot of the cross, friends. The shadow of the cross falls equally over all who will humble themselves underneath it. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your background. God's grace falls equally over all who will turn to him. This is the basis for gospel unity. But we find a second threat in our passage this morning. It wasn't just the threat of legalism, but in verses 11 through 14, we find the threat of prejudicial hypocrisy, another threat to gospel unity. In verses 11 through 14, the Apostle Paul goes on to speak of another encounter he had with the Apostle Peter when Peter visited him at the church in Antioch. Now, now, friends, we need to understand this this morning. This was one of the most drama-filled scenes in the history of the church. I mean, what you have here are two apostles, two theological heavyweights, two leaders of the early church in a confrontation with one another. And what had happened, Paul tells us here, that he opposed Peter to his face in front of the entire church. Paul had to confront Peter. Now, I want you to understand this morning, this public confrontation where Paul confronted Peter, this was very significant. And why was it significant? Because public error demands a public rebuke. You might remember Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18. Jesus says, look, if a brother sins against you, you need to go to that brother privately and you need to try to correct him. 
But in this situation, Paul rebuked Peter to his face in front of the entire church. And why was that? It was because Peter's sin and Peter's error was literally leading other people in the church astray. And because it was a public sin, it demanded a public confrontation. See, this would, this would be like if Pastor Stephen was preaching up here Sunday morning. And Pastor Stephen starts espousing some biblical heresy, right? He would never do that, of course. But, but Pastor Stephen's up here preaching some biblical heresy. Friends, I am not going to wait till Monday morning to go into Pastor Stephen's office and gently correct him. No, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to come up front. I'm going to say, Stephen, you're done preaching this morning, okay? And I'm not going to let you lead our church into heresy, right? That, that's part of my commission as a shepherd of the gospel. And so Paul needed to publicly rebuke Peter because he was leading people astray. Now, what was the issue here in verses 11 through 14? Well, Peter had sinned against his Gentile brothers and sisters by committing prejudicial hypocrisy. See, Paul tells us that Peter had been regularly fellowshipping and eating meals with the Gentile Christians. And this shouldn't surprise us because, again, Peter, in our first story this morning, we saw that Peter was one of those pillars of the Jerusalem church that embraced Paul's gospel. He recognized Paul's gospel, that the gospel was for both Jew and Gentile alike. So, of course, Peter's eating with Gentile Christians. There's no big deal there. But all of a sudden, he stops. He separates from the Gentile believers. So what had happened? Well, Paul says in verse 12 that certain men came from James. Now, this doesn't mean that James the apostle sent these men. It simply means that they came from James's church in Jerusalem. And Paul goes on to tell us in verse 12 that these men were from the circumcision group. In other words, these guys were the Judaizers. They were the legalists that Paul had been confronting. And what I'm guessing took place was James, because he embraced the true gospel, he had probably kicked these guys out of his church, and now they're on the move looking for other churches to sow their false gospel into. So they show up in Antioch. But whatever their motivation, whatever the reason they're there, they were part of this heretical movement that was trying to pervert the gospel by adding legalistic rules and requirements. And they were the guys that Paul was contending with in the churches of Galatia. And so this story here that Paul shares with us has huge implications for the entire book of Galatians. Now what had happened when the Judaizers showed up in Antioch, all of a sudden Peter stops fellowshipping with the Gentile believers there. He separates from the Gentile Christians. Now we don't know why for sure that he did this. Maybe, maybe it was because he feared these Judaizers' influence back in Jerusalem. Maybe he still had some of his own leftover cultural prejudice as a Jew, and, and now he's concerned, maybe I'm fellowshipping too much with these Gentiles. We don't know for sure. But regardless, it was hypocritical. It was sinful. And Paul confronts Peter over not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. I mean, can you imagine how Peter must have felt at this rebuke? Here he is being confronted by a fellow apostle. But friends, this rebuke was necessary. Had Paul allowed this prejudice to go unchallenged, it would have split the church. It would have communicated to everybody there in Antioch that the Gentile Christians weren't fully acceptable to God. And again, Paul knew the gospel and the unity that we find in the gospel was at stake. This was a hugely 
consequential episode in the history of the church. The entire gospel hung in the balance. And fortunately for us, the truth of the gospel won out. But like in our earlier story, there's a lesson in this story for us today as well. See, friends, that same prejudicial hypocrisy that Peter fell prey to, Satan still uses prejudice and hypocrisy to divide the church today. Our issues today aren't about Jews and Gentiles eating together. But friends, understand this. We can be equally prejudicial and hypocritical if we too fail to walk in line with the gospel. What does this look like? Well, let me ask you some questions this morning. Have you ever viewed another brother or sister in Christ judgmentally or critically because of their social status, their education, how much money they make? Have you ever looked down upon another believer because of their political persuasion? Have you ever sat next to somebody here in worship who you would never think of inviting over to your home for lunch? See, friends, all of these are examples of prejudicial hypocrisy. And there's no place for it in gospel-based Christianity. See, we need to remember this. God didn't choose to fellowship with any of us because of our race, our education, how much money we make, or who we vote for. So if God doesn't base his fellowship with us on those things, what right do we have to base our fellowship with other believers on those types of things? See, friends, that's not how the gospel works. The gospel says to us that we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of our holy creator's righteous standards. We all deserve God's wrath. And yet the gospel tells us that there's freedom and grace and welcome found in the person of Jesus Christ. God accepts all people in Jesus Christ. See, that's the basis for gospel unity. The gospel is the great equalizer. No matter who you are, no matter your past, your background, if you'll humble yourself before the cross of Jesus Christ, you will find welcome. Now, some of you might be thinking right now, Jason, man, I didn't come here this morning and get smacked over the head with gospel truth. You know what I mean? I mean, mean, this is convicting stuff. And, And trust me, I know this is convicting stuff. I've been wrestling with it all week. All right? But here's the deal. The reality is the more we come to understand the gospel, the more it's going to confront us in every area of our lives. And this is inevitably going to lead to some discomfort in us. But please understand, friends, the Holy Spirit doesn't sanctify us to make us comfortable. He sanctifies us to make us more like Jesus. And so as we study this book of Galatians together, we're going to stay in the word, okay? And we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit's conviction through the word. And we're going to trust that God will continue his sanctifying work in our lives through the power of his word. That's what this is all about. And if that agenda doesn't sound interesting to you, you might need to find yourself a different church, at least for the next few weeks. Because we're going to stay rooted in the truth of God's word. And that's going to mean sometimes he's going to convict us and he's going to challenge us. But God didn't sanctify us to make us comfortable. He wants to make us more like Jesus. 
Now, after describing these two crucial encounters, Paul goes on in our passage to powerfully reaffirm the basis for our unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is our basis for gospel unity in verses 15 through 21? Paul emphasizes it is found through justification, justification through faith. Now, it's interesting to note, if you read and look at verses 15 through 21 closely, these, past, these verses still fall in the context of Paul's rebuke of Peter. In other words, Paul is still preaching to Peter here as we read the second half of our passage. And friends, I think that's amazing to think about. All right, Here you've got Peter, one of the pillars of the early church. He was the leader of the disciples. He spent three years being taught by Jesus Christ himself. And yet even Peter still needed a reminder about what the heart of the gospel was really all about. And friends, if Peter needed those kind of reminders, I think all of us need those kinds of reminders. I heard a story recently about a pastor who, after one of his sermons, was standing at the back of the church, and one of his members came up to him and asked him, Pastor, why are you always preaching the gospel? You know, you're so often preaching the gospel. Why are you doing that? And the pastor said, because you're so often forgetting it. <laughs> Friends, we all have this tendency to forget the gospel. We, we, we forget the gospel because it rubs against everything in our fallen human nature. The idea that we can freely come into a relationship with God. The idea that, that there's nothing that we can do to earn or work or prove our worthiness. That it's all about God's grace. Friends, we need to be reminded of that. And we need to be reminded of the implications of the gospel, that all people are equal at the foot of the cross. So Paul goes on here and he reminds us about the heart of the gospel, justification through faith. For the sake of time this morning, I just want to highlight one verse from this final section. It's verse 16, and it really summarizes the entirety of this passage. Galatians 2, verse 16. Paul says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Friends, Paul affirms powerfully here, salvation is only found by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we find justification. This is Paul's first use of, use of the word justification here in the book of Galatians. And we're going to see this word come up repeatedly as we go forward in our series. And, and what is justification? Justification, friends, is an act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. Now, I'd write that down, and I would spend some time meditating on that statement this week. And just think about what that means for you this morning. God declares you righteous through Jesus Christ. You're not righteous on your own. There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. The word righteous means morally pure. It means perfect. It means holy. And there's nothing that you can do of your own accord to attain righteousness. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ... God declares you righteous through Jesus. That's grace, friends. That's the good news of the gospel. 
That's the hope that we have as Christians. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. And friends, that again is the basis for gospel unity. Remember John 3.16? For God so loved the whole world that whoever believes in him. Friends, all of us find common ground at the foot of the cross of Christ. All of us are justified freely by the grace of God given to us through Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the gospel, friends. It's not about works. It's not about legalism. It's not about what we do. It's not about keeping the rules. It's not about proving our worthiness to God. Friends, that is baloney. You can't do anything to attain righteousness in the eyes of God. But God loved you so much that he poured out his grace upon us through the free gift of his son and his shed blood on the cross that offers forgiveness of our sins and new life with our creator. And it's a free gift. It's a gift of grace. There's a vast difference, friends, between grace and works. I heard a story this past week about a robbery that took place in Saugus, Massachusetts recently. These two robbers had run into a delicatessen and it was their first holdup, so they're obviously nervous. And, and these robbers, they shoved a gun in the cashier's face and they said, stuff this brown bag. They gave him a brown, stuff this paper bag full of cash. I want everything in the cash register. And you know, they're, you know, they're nervously waving the gun and, and the cashier, you know, he's stuffing the bag full of cash and, and the robbers are looking around. They grab the bag, they run out of the store and they get back to their hideout and they open the bag to check out their haul, their loot. And when they open the bag, they discover two pastrami sandwiches and a slice of baklava. They had grabbed the wrong bag. <laughs> Friends, when it comes to grace and works, it can be easy to grab the wrong bag. See, the bag of works has one word written on it, do. And when you open it up, what you find is a list of rules and regulations and requirements that you need to perform and keep in order to prove your worthiness to God. It's about your effort and your striving. But friends, there's no treasure in that bag. All it is is a couple stale old sandwiches and day-old baklava. The other bag, however, the bag of grace, has one word written on it. It says faith. And when you open up that bag, what you discover are all the treasures of heaven, the treasures of the gospel, the free gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift that changes everything. And so the question you need to ask yourself this morning is which bag have you picked up? Because the consequences are incredibly important. And it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus said in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Friends, there's only one way to experience peace with God. You can't earn it, you can't work for it, you can't buy it. You're justified only by the free gift of God's grace through believing in his Son, Jesus Christ. It's a free gift. Who among us here wouldn't want to receive that? Let me close in a word of prayer today. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the power of the gospel. It's the power that unites us and, and, and the great equalizer that makes all people one 
at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for, for the unity that we can find in the good news of the gospel. And it's more than just the unity that we find with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's the freedom that we find in a life-saving relationship with you. God, we thank you for lavishing your grace upon us. We thank you, Lord, that while we were lost in our sin, wretched and depraved, rebelling against you, wallowing in the pigsty like the, like the prodigal son, God, in your great love, you never gave up on us. And, and you initiated a rescue mission to, to provide a way for us to be saved. And Lord, you say that anyone here who will believe in your son, Jesus Christ, by faith can receive this gift of salvation. What an incredible offer. And so friends, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't yet received that free gift of salvation, that you might turn to God this morning and just simply say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I know I need you. I want to put down that bag of worthless works and I want to pick up that bag containing all the treasures of the good news of the free gift of salvation. I want to put my trust in you as the way and the truth and the life. Friends, if you'll receive that gift, it'll change everything. Thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy and your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.